predestination and why it is good news for you. We're going to be looking at this massive topic as we look at the back half of John 6, thinking about how it shapes our evangelism. Then we're going to dig deeper on the topic as we do a doctrines you should know. So buckle up, it's going to get pretty theological. My name's Tom Abib. You're listening to The Word Grows. Okay, so we have hit over 1,000 downloads for this podcast, which I'm really excited about. I just clocked in at 1,004, which is awesome. And I want to tell you about how you can help get the word out so that we can get more people listening and growing in God's word uh, before we dive into it today. So first of all, um, most of you probably know Facebook have changed their algorithms, which make it harder for people to discover my podcast. Now, to be honest, I wasn't really working the algorithms that much to begin with. I don't really understand that much. I'm pretty bad on social media and that kind of thing, but I think this is right. I'm probably wrong, so just Google it, but I think what you need to do is just go over to my page on Facebook, uh, search the word grows, uh, if like it if you haven't liked it yet, and, and if you do like that page, then under the following tab, uh, it'll be cl- it'll be default at the moment, I think, uh, just click see first, and that'll make sure you get all my updates on Facebook and that kind of thing. Otherwise, best way that you can be supporting it and making sure that you're getting... Um, uh, you're getting the podcast, is to go over and subscribe on iTunes or Podbean. Um, if you do, you'll get instant access to my latest podcast when it comes out. It'll be straight away. Uh, and, and most of all, best way you can help is share. Uh, it's just such a massive help if you could share the latest episode after you've heard it. Either share the iTunes link or the link from my website uh, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever. Uh, it's just such a big help. Uh, I, I know some people who've posted it to their Christian groups I think that's a great idea. So um, I think someone uh, somehow, uh, it, it, somehow this got shared on a Christian dentist Facebook page, which I just think is awesome. Okay, so big shout out to all my Christian dentist listeners. Love you guys. I'm taking better care of my teeth now because of you. Well, I'm not, but I will be because of you guys. I love you. Okay, all right, we better get into it. But I'd love it if you could share uh, share this podcast so that we can have more word growers, more people uh, who hear God's word and are sharing it with others. Okay, predestination. Okay, I want to slow down in this episode. Okay, we're just looking at this topic and that's it. Uh, and for the Bible part uh, at the start, we're just looking at the back half of John 6. We screamed through John 6 in the last episode. We went really fast. But there's some really important verses at the end that we didn't get much time to dig into. And those verses are all about why it is uh, that people don't believe. And we see how Jesus talks about how people won't come to him unless the Father draws him. Okay, so a bit of context. Uh, John chapter 6, Jesus is talking about all of this because he's just had this massive you know, evangelistic event, if we could call it that. 5,000 men, probably 20,000 people in the desert. And they all end up abandoning Jesus. It's like just the 12 at the end and one of them is a devil. It's not very good, right? Uh, now, why is that? Why, why do people not believe? That's kind of the key question. What went wrong? Um, and as you look more broadly at, at kind of John, the first half of John, John chapters 1 to 10, you could ask the same question. You know, why is it ultimately that people reject Jesus? What's going on there? Why is it, as, as John tells us in the prologue, why is it that Jesus came into the world, but the world didn't recognize him? Uh, why is it that he, he came to his own, but his own did not receive him? You know, w- what's going on here? It's a really important question. It's also a really important question for us, isn't it? Uh, you know, why is it that people don't believe when I share the gospel with them? 
Um, you know, have you ever asked that question? I, I, I ask that question all the time. What, what's the problem? What's going wrong here? Is it, is it an intellectual problem? Do I just need to try and convince them all with really good arguments? Is it a cultural problem? Is it because, you know, they're from a Muslim background or Buddhist background and, and they're just too tied into their culture? They're never going to believe. Uh, is it a social problem? You know, maybe they, they just don't have enough Christian friends. Maybe our church doesn't look impressive enough. And so, you know, I could never invite them to that. Or, you, you know, what's the problem? Is the problem with me? You know, am I just uh, hopeless at this kind of stuff? I should just give up trying to share the message of Jesus. What's the problem? Uh, that That's kind of, a, a, it's a big question that we all ask ourselves. And it's a question we need to ask. Why is it that people don't believe? What we're going to see in John 6 is that at the end of the day, it actually all comes down to God and his decision, his sovereignty, his purposes. Uh, we're going to see that the fact is that he is the one who's in charge and he chooses who believes. So no one can actually believe unless he allows them to believe. And everyone who does believe is because he drew them to himself. And what we're going to see is this really helps us uh, helps us to understand why it is people don't believe, but it also helps to shape our evangelism, our approach to evangelism, and the way we think about evangelism. So let's dive straight into it. We're in uh, John chapter 6, the back half, and we're kind of given two explanations. It's kind of the same explanation. We're given two explanations of this unbelief. First of all, Jesus looks at the unbelief of the Jewish authorities. This is uh, verses 43, 46 of chapter 6. So, uh, you know, the, the Jewish leaders, they're not believing, um, and they're not coming to Jesus. And Jesus says that it's actually because coming to the Son for life is entirely dependent upon the Father's drawing work. Okay, so verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now, this is radical, not just because it kind of lays the foundation, uh, the, the groundwork for predestination, but because Jesus is, it, it's because of who Jesus is talking to. He's suggesting that these religious Jews, the historic people of God, they haven't been chosen by God. And I think this is what the Isaiah quote is about in the next verse, right? So, so Jesus quotes Isaiah 54, 13, they will all be taught by God. And what's going on in Isaiah is, is that it's a vision of, of God's true people around, who, who are redeemed and they're standing in God's presence and they're being taught by God's truth forever. And Jesus is saying they are the true people of God. The true people of God are those who stand around in God's presence and listen to God and are taught by God. But what do you have with this, uh, with the religious leaders of the day? What are they doing? Well, they're rejecting Jesus' words. Jesus has been sent from the Father, and therefore they are rejecting God's words. And so Jesus says in verse 45, Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. And so this is the point that he's making. He's saying, look, you guys... The fact that you are unwilling to listen, the fact that you are unwilling to come to me and believe, that is actually a sign that you are not the people of God. That is a sign that you have not been chosen by God. And that's a massive call uh, to this historic people of God who would have seen themselves as the chosen ones, you know, the people, the the nation chosen by God. Uh, and, And it really helps us to understand unbelief because this isn't a failure on Jesus' part. It's it's not that Jesus did something wrong. Uh, and that's why these uh, Jews aren't believing. And it definitely shouldn't make us doubt whether uh, whether we should follow Jesus or not. Now, the reason that they don't believe is because they're not actually one of God's children. And and the Father has not chosen them to be his children. Uh, so, so that's the first glimpse we get at it. Then, then we see a similar thing in verse 60 onwards. So at this point, it's not just the Jewish religious leaders who are rejecting Jesus. Jesus' own disciples now 
are finding his teaching hard and starting to question him, starting to not listen. So, so are his own disciples not chosen by God? Well, have a look at what Jesus says, verse 63. The spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. Now, that is a key verse for understanding why people believe or not. Okay, the flesh, that's our, um, our human abilities, qualities. Jesus says it counts for nothing. Okay, it counts for nothing in this. That's largely because our flesh has been tainted by sin. Okay, Jesus is going to show later on in John, we're blind in our sin. We're enslaved by sin. We're children of the devil. Truth, it's like a, a foreign language to us. And so on our own, in the flesh, there's no way that we could possibly believe. Our sin, in our sinful state, we would never naturally believe in God and believe in Jesus' message. But whilst the flesh counts for nothing, the spirit gives life. And that's massive because what it shows is that when someone doesn't believe, the problem isn't ultimately an intellectual problem. Okay? The, the problem isn't a cultural problem or a social problem. It's a profoundly spiritual problem. Only the spirit can actually open people's eyes and give them life. And the flesh counts for nothing. The flesh, our, our, our sinful fleshly nature will never, ever respond to God on our own. And of course, the, the, the first you know, sort of application of all of this is that prayer has to be at the very heart of our evangelism, right? Because you know, ultimately, it's not actually our job to convert people. It's the Father who draws them. It's the Spirit who opens their eyes and gives them life. And so if we want them to believe, it's going to have to be a work of God, uh, not a work of us, and not a work of them by themselves either. It's got to be God at work. And so we've just got to be praying like crazy that the people that we know and that are in our lives who don't know Jesus... We've got to be praying to God, asking him, him, draw them to yourself, God. Open their eyes by your spirit. Give them life. That's got to be our prayer. But we also need to be careful uh, in in what's being said here because the Bible also never teaches us to be fatalists. Okay, You, you, you might have sort of thought of this before or heard this argument. You know, well, if it's up to God to convert everybody, I don't need to do anything. You know, I can just sort of sit on my hands and and wait for God to convert everyone. But that actually misses the very next part of the verse. Okay, so let's go back to that verse, verse 63. The spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. Okay, so do you see the point? How does the father draw people to the son? How does the spirit give life? Well, it's through the words of Jesus. Okay, that's the means by which God acts to save someone. And what that means is, is that we have work to do, right? We might not be the ones uh, that draw people to God. We're not the ones that open people's eyes, but we are the ones that proclaim the word to people. And it's actually as we weak people, you know, including myself in this, we weak people, as we proclaim the word of the Son uh, to people around us, that is when the Father draws people through the power of his spirit, to the Son. And, and that's actually what we see Jesus doing in this very chapter. You know, so Jesus is very clear. Look, you're not going to come to me unless the Father draws you. But that doesn't stop him from making an appeal to the people. You know, he doesn't just kind of sit there in the desert and just wait to see who the Father's going to draw to him. No, he is out there. And what's he doing? He's preaching. Okay, verse 51. If anyone eats of this bread, he'll live forever. Jesus is always holding out through his word the offer of life. But it's still up to the Father whether people will respond to that word as he causes his spirit to open people's eyes and give them life. Okay, So this has, hopefully that makes sense about God's uh, sovereign work in drawing people to himself. 
And I think this has a huge impact on our evangelism. Because generally we make two mistakes uh, with our, our evangelism. We go one, one mistake or the other. Uh, on the one hand, we can make the mistake that denies that God is in control. Uh, that denies that actually God has chosen people. Uh, that it's God who draws people. Uh, basically, the, the response that denies predestination. And says, no, 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 it's not God that draws people. It's people who choose God. Okay? And really, I mean, there's a lot more we could say about this, but in terms of evangelism, that's just setting yourself up for despair, okay? Because you're going to be overwhelmed then by the, respect, by the weight of your responsibility. And you'll be totally crushed when people don't respond to you, right? Uh, inevitably, what's going to happen is, is that you'll start changing the message, okay? Because if you don't trust that it's the Father who draws people and it's the Spirit who opens people's eyes, if you think, well, it's all up to me to convince them to choose God, well, then what's going to happen when your evangelism stops working, or, or it isn't working, which is, is going to happen sometimes at least, what are you going to do? Well, you'll probably try new strategies, right? If you don't trust God to, to make the change, you're the one who has to do the change, you'll think, well, maybe this message isn't working, maybe I need to change the message to make it a bit more appealing, or maybe I need to put on a big, tr- big show and try to look really impressive to attract people to our message, because you think it's dependent on you. But see, if you know uh, that the Father is the one who draws people, if you know that it's the Spirit who opens people's eyes that God is sovereignly at work in choosing who comes to him, um, then when you evangelize, what all you're doing is just quietly, prayerfully, plugging away, sharing the message, and you're confident that he will do his work. And, and here's the thing, that actually makes you evangelize more. See, it's kind of counterintuitive. You'd think that knowing that it is the Father who draws and the Spirit who opens eyes, you'd think that would make us evangelize less, but it's the opposite. It actually makes us evangelize more. I'll give you an example. My senior minister, uh, he's awesome. He's a little bit crazy when it comes to evangelism because he's the only guy I know in the world who actually loves door knocking. Okay, I, I, I go door knocking and I always have the same reaction. Before I go out... I really, really, really don't want to do it. I hate it. I just think, just looking for any excuse not to do it, you know, hoping that somehow it gets cancelled. I don't have to go. It's not a good, not a good thing, but, but that's kind of how I'm feeling. And then after it, and you have these awesome conversations, you're sharing Jesus, you go, ah, oh, that was really good. I should do that more. That's really great. Okay, that's not my senior minister. My senior minister loves door knocking. He just wants to do this all the time. And I asked him why. I said, well, why do you love it so much? And he said, well, look, God's prepared the people that he's calling to himself. We just need to go out there and find them. I think that that is such a great attitude. See, God's sovereignty, the fact that he's in control, he's chosen people uh, and, and he's drawing them to himself, totally changes your perspective on things. It actually makes you confident to go out and have a go at sharing the message because you know that if God hasn't called them, look, they're not going to respond anyway. But if he has called them, then God can use, you know, little old you, he can use little old me to bring them into the kingdom, to bring them to life. So it actually encourages evangelism. Okay, so that's the first mistake we can make, kind of deny the sovereignty of God, deny predestination, deny the fact that it is God who draws people. The second mistake we can make is the opposite, which is that we actually become fatalists. So what I was talking about before. Uh, this is what's sometimes called hyper-Calvinism. Uh, and it's where you use the sovereignty of God to justify doing absolutely nothing to reach people. Okay, to, to basically you're justifying not evangelizing. Uh, now, I don't think many people actually believe this, at least not in the circles that I'm in. Um, but I think we do act like this practically a bit. Okay, I think I think sometimes we can be practical hyper-Calvinists. What do I mean by that? 
sometimes a church might or, or an individual might not actually be doing that much to reach reach the lost okay not not trying to meet people in the community not really talking to people at work or or, or their friends about Jesus they're pretty much inactive okay they pretty much do nothing uh, but because they're faithful you know either they're they're faithful in in uh, what they know to be the truth or, or as a church you know they're faithful in their teaching on Sunday they kind of give themselves a pat on the pat on the back and they say well look you know our job's not to be fruitful our job's to be faithful um, it's not our fault that people aren't becoming Christians. Uh, we just need to keep plugging along. Now, that, that principle's true, okay? It, it's important to be faithful, and it's up to God whether you're fruitful. But if you're not actually doing any evangelism, right, um, then that's, that's on you, okay? It's on you if you're not fruitful, if you're not doing anything. Um, and, and we need to say, no, 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 actually, God's sovereignty, predestination, the fact that it's the Father who chooses people and draws people up to himself, that should actually send us out there. And we need to be actually doing things because God draws people to himself. He opens people's eyes through the Spirit as we proclaim the Word. So we actually need to get out there. We need to be active. People who believe in predestination, people who believe in the sovereignty of God, they should be full-on activists when it comes to evangelism. You know, Out there, opening God's Word with people, starting gospel conversations at work, inviting people to our events or church services, running evangelistic courses, trying new things, trying anything to try and get the word out there. Um, because we know that the God of the universe is actually working through us. Okay, so hopefully you see that's why understanding why people don't believe is so crucial. And we need to believe in and understand predestination if we're going to get evangelism right. We need to know it's the Father who draws people by the Spirit. Uh, we need to know that it's through the word of his son, okay? And we need to know both of those things. Our job, preach the gospel. Go hard. Preach, preach, preach. Proclaim, proclaim, proclaim. Ah, that's hard to say. Proclaim the gospel, okay? Proclaim the gospel of his son. God's job, he will do the work of drawing people to himself by his spirit. Okay, so that's just a little reflection on the back half of John 6. But now I want to go deeper even still. Uh, because I know that predestination is a massive question that a lot of people have. Um, and, and so I want to do now another doctrines you should know. We've done some really good ones so far. We looked at um, doctrine of revelation. We looked at the doctrine of the Trinity. Now we're going to be looking at the doctrine of predestination. We, we, we hit the full-on doctrines. You know, We don't shy away from doctrines uh, here at The Word Grows. So uh, we're going to be looking at predestination. And really my goal is for you to, to go away from listening at this, from, uh, of this podcast to go away thinking, wow, the doctrine of predestination is good news. You know, I, I think predestination can sometimes be one of those doctrines uh, that people, at least, you know, um, people who, who, you know, read their Bible and they, they, they want to believe what the Bible says, uh, it can be a doctrine that we're like, yeah, I believe in it, but I feel pretty uncomfortable about it. I don't really understand it, and I kind of sometimes wish it wasn't true. And I want to change that. Okay, I want us to embrace this doctrine and see how good it is and why we should um, uh, love it, learn from it, uh, believe it. Okay, so doctrines you should know, predestination. Now, two sort of helpful starting points here. Uh, the first, and this is true for any kind of uh, exploration into, into doctrines, um, but especially for really tricky doctrines like predestination, we need humility, okay? So the key verse for you is Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever, 
that we may follow all the words of this law. Basically, what that's saying is you don't know everything, okay? I don't know everything. There are lots of questions that we have about God uh, that, we, that we don't actually know. Uh, these are what's called the secret things, okay? But there are things that we do know about God because they have been revealed to us. So whatever God has revealed to us about himself, that we know. And this goes back to our doctrine of revelation, doesn't it? How do we know God? Well, it's based on whether... He has revealed himself to us or not. So anything that God has revealed to us, we can say, yes, we know this. But if God hasn't revealed it to us, even though we might have questions about it, uh, we, we might have to say, look, I don't know the answers to that. God just hasn't told me. And we can be confident that uh, those things that we don't know, we might want to know the answers, but we, we don't need to know because God is going to tell us what we need to know. Okay? Uh, so... Um, you know, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for correcting, teaching, rebuking, and training in righteousness, okay? Uh, everything we have been given, we've been given to make us wise for salvation. So God is not going to hold back knowledge that we need to know about him, uh, but there are going to be things uh, and things about predestination that we're going to want to know, and we're going to just have to, in humility, say, you know, God just doesn't tell us. So that's the first thing, first starting point. The second one I've already talked about, and that is joy. Uh, so Psalm 19, the precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. And I, I really, it's a challenge for me when we hear God's word, not just to say, is this true, but is this joyful? <laughs> you know, do I see the good in this? Do I delight in what God is saying, even in the really hard things? And so that's another helpful starting point. Um, we we need to not just know that this is right, but why this is good. All right, so let's uh, have a look at this doctrine of predestination. Um, just let me just map out where we're going to go. First thing I want to do is show you that um, it's actually there in the Bible. Okay, uh, this is not just some doctrine made up by a guy named Calvin in the in the 15th century. Um, this this comes from the Word of God. I think sometimes people unhelpfully say, "Oh, you're just a Calvinist," and that's why you believe it. Well, no, I'm a, I'm a Bible guy, and that's why I believe it. So I want to show you predestination from the Bible. I'll show you some key texts, and then I'll kind of take you through the story of the Bible and show you how predestination works in the story of the Bible. Um, then I want to look at two of the main objections that people have to predestination. We're going to have a bit of a think about what to say to that. And then I want to land on this joy thing. I want to land by looking at, okay, why is it good news uh, that the predestination is true. Okay, so first of all, um, let's have a look at some of these. Sorry, let's have a look at some of these key texts um, about predestination. So, lots of places we could go. I'll just give you a few. Matthew eleven twenty five to thirty. Uh, at that time, Jesus said, "I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned, and revealed them to little ch children. Yes, Father, for this is what you are pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father." No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Okay, so, so we, what do we see here? Well, we see that we, we, what we call election. We see that actually people come to believe only when God chooses them. Uh, so it is the Father who actively hides the truth from those who think that they are wise and learned. Um, and then we see the Son... The Father, uh, we're, we're told, no one knows the Father except the Son and those 
to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Um, and, and so there you go. Uh, we see that it is God who chooses whether people believe or don't believe. Uh, we already looked at this, but John six thirty seven: all those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I'll never drive away. John six sixty five: this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. So it's the same idea. People aren't going to believe unless God allows that to happen. God makes that happen. We don't choose God. God chooses us. Okay, what about the actual word predestination? Well, Romans eight twenty nine to 30 is a really well-known one. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. So there you go, right there in the Bible. Paul says, God does predestine people, okay? Uh, I've noticed, I've actually just realized we haven't actually defined predestination. (laughs) Predestined means that God has decided beforehand who uh, will be saved and who will not be saved, who will believe and who will not believe. That's that's what predestination is. The opposite of of, of believing in predestination is is to believe that actually we are the ones who decide whether we believe or not. Uh, And that's called, well, that's often called Arminianism. Um, it's got other names as well. Um, not to be confused with Armenians, uh, our uh, female um, uh, worker at uh, at our church is Armenian, and uh, she will want me to say that. Arminian, not Armenian. Okay, let's go on. Sorry. Romans 9, uh, 11 to 12. Uh, this is a really important chapter on predestination, uh, and Paul says, He's talking about Esau and, and Jacob. He says, Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. We're going to go into this a little bit more, but basically saying God chose, predestined, elected uh, Jacob, even before they were born. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1-2, to 2, how does Peter describe believers? To God's elect. The exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And then a massive passage that just kind of lays this on again and again is Ephesians uh, chapter 1, verses 4 to 6. Uh, I'll just read out some verses. So, verse 4, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in according to his pleasure and will. In him we were also, this is verse 11, in him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Okay, so again and again, uh, the point that seems to be going on that Paul's making in Ephesians chapter 1 is that this is all God. Okay, God shows, God predestined, it's according to his purpose, it's according to his will, his plan. So, so we can go to lots of passages and see this. This isn't just like a one-off thing that could be misunderstood. It's pretty clear, God chooses people. Um, but what I want to do is not just kind of take out some proof texts uh, to show you that, that predestination is there. I, I want to show you how this idea unfolds throughout the story of the Bible, because I think that will help us understand it a little bit better. Um, so... You know, who does God first choose? Uh, you could think about it uh, in that sense. And, um, you know, I, I guess you could say more about this, but the, the most obvious uh, person that you could think of is Abraham, right? God chooses Abraham out of everybody who chooses Abraham. 
And when we say he chooses Abraham, what we're really saying is, is that he chooses Israel. Uh, he chooses Abraham's seed. He chooses this nation. And this is a theme that we see all throughout the Old Testament, that Israel is actually described as a nation chosen by God. Okay, God's portion set apart by God, chosen by God. We see that in lots of passages. We go to Deuteronomy chapter 10, chapter 32, Psalm 47, Isaiah 41, Amos 3. Lots and lots of different passages that are really emphasizing that Israel is God's special possession, his chosen people. And one of the key verses for this is actually uh, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7 and 8, because this is where God talks about why he chose them. Okay, uh, this, is, this is what it says. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So why did God choose them? Well, we're not fully told. We're more told why he didn't choose them. And it wasn't because there was anything impressive about them. It's not like God kind of looked into the future and said, oh, there's going to be this awesome nation called Israel. I better choose them to be my people. Actually, they're a pretty pathetic-looking nation. Uh, God simply chooses them out of his own divine grace. Uh, It's because he loved them. Uh, And therefore... Uh, He chose them uh, to be this uh, special nation, this people of God, his people. And so here's the point. Out of all the nations of the world, God chose Israel. Okay, that's his predestiny. That's his work of election. Uh, And and that's what we see in Deuteronomy 10 as well. Deuteronomy 10, 14 to 15. um, To the Lord your God belongs the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your ancestors and loved them. And he chose you their descendants above all the nations as it is today. Uh, and in Deuteronomy 32, we're also we're, we're given this, this really beautiful picture that the Lord dividing up the nations, uh, choosing what all the nations would receive, and then choosing Israel uh, to be his special inheritance. So when we want to talk about predestination, when we want to talk about election, God choosing a people, uh, we need to first see that God chose the whole nation of Israel uh, to be his special people. But we need to be careful there. Because Paul tells us in Romans 9, not all Israel are Israel. Uh, And what that means is is that whilst God chose the nation of Israel to be his people, uh, he didn't choose all the people in Israel. Uh, He only chose uh, the people of the promise. uh, And go on to explain that is the people who have faith. Uh, So let's kind of look at what Paul's talking about in Romans chapter 9. He, He starts his argument... Uh, by saying not all Israel are uh, are Israel. In other words, not everybody in Israel was chosen by God. Um, And Paul uses two test cases to show this. And the two test cases are two sets of brothers. First, we've got Ishmael and Isaac. And second, we've got Jacob and Esau. Uh, So first of all, Paul says, look, being a direct descendant of Abraham doesn't guarantee that you are Israel, doesn't guarantee that you're chosen by God. And the obvious example there is Isaac and Ishmael. They are both descendants of Abraham, aren't they? Ishmael's a descendant of Abraham, but he's not chosen by God uh, to be a child of God. Uh, Whereas uh, Isaac is a descendant of Abraham, and yet he is chosen by God. Uh, You you know, um, in Galatians, Paul looks at uh, Isaac and Ishmael to to look at the difference between, um, you know, the child of uh, of the slavery to law and and the child of faith. Uh, But it seems here in Romans 9, he's looking at 
you know, the, the, the child of the flesh and then the child of election. And, uh, and Ishmael, whilst he's, a de- whilst he's a descendant of Abraham, he hasn't been elected. He hasn't been predestined. He hasn't been chosen to be one of the people of God. And so he's not. Uh, whereas Isaac, who's a child of the promise, uh, he has been chosen. And then we get another test case, and that's Jacob and Esau. Um, and the key thing, that, key thing that we see about Jacob and Esau is that God actually tells Rebekah his choice before they're even born. Okay? Uh, so, so think about it. You've got twins in the womb. You can't get two people who are more similar right now. Okay? And yet two people in the womb, this is Paul's point, before they were born or had done anything good or bad, God said, the older will serve the younger. Okay, now we're going to come back to this, but, but this is a really important point because it shows predestination is actually tied to the doctrine of salvation of grace. Uh, it, it's a doctrine that's really important to show that salvation by works is wrong. See, if God chooses people, if God elects people because you know he, he can see, oh, well, they're going to be a really good person or they're, they're going to choose me because they've, they've got a lot of faith. Uh, if that's how God bases his election rather than on predestining them, um, then it's actually a salvation by works. God chooses them because he can see the good that they're going to do. Um, but in order for God to purely save by his grace alone, they have to be predestined before they could do anything good or bad. And that's, that's the point of Esau and Jacob. They're in the womb. They haven't done anything yet. Uh, they, they, they haven't produced any works. And yet already God has chosen one and not the other. Um, and, you know, you, <laughs> I mean, you really can't make an argument that God just foresaw how good Jacob would be because Jacob's a rat bag, isn't he? You know, J- Jacob doesn't deserve to be a child of promise. Jacob's very, very sinful. Uh, but here you have two twins in the womb. One's chosen and the other's not. Not all Israel are Israel. And this, this theme continues throughout the Old Testament. You know, in Isaiah 10, we see only a remnant of Israel actually believe and will remain. So even though all Israel is chosen as a nation, God actually chooses individuals within Israel uh, as true believers uh, and, and as those uh, who, who are children of the promise. Okay, so we've looked at Israel, we've looked at those chosen within Israel. Now we're going to, na- sort of narrowing down in election, now we're going to narrow down right to one person, and that is God's chosen servant. So there's another way in which God's predestining or, or election works in the Old Testament, and that is with servants that he has raised up um, for, for a particular task. Okay? He, he chooses who his servant will be through whom he'll save his people. So the classic Old Testament example is David. We're doing um, 1 Samuel in church at the moment, and we see Saul is the king, but David is chosen by God and anointed by Samuel to be the true king. And how's he described? He's described as a man after God's own heart. And the point of that phrase, man after God's own heart, it's, it's often misunderstood. It doesn't actually mean that, that there was anything particularly impressive about David. You know, you, you read the story of David, he's a bit of a mixed bag. Um, but rather, he, he's a man after God's own heart because God has his heart for David. He has chosen David. Uh, and that's really the ultimate difference between David and Saul. It's really that God has chosen David to be his king and not Saul. And as you, you follow this idea of God's chosen servant through, uh, and you, you come to Isaiah and, and you hear about uh, the servant that God has chosen, who he will raise up to save his people, uh, you come to see ultimately God's true chosen servant who will save his people, 
uh, is the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and we, we, we see that um, throughout the gospel. So Luke chapter 9, chapter 23, um, prophesied in Isaiah 42, uh, we see this is, this is God's chosen one. Um, even in John 17, uh, which is an interesting one, where Jesus said that uh, the Father loved him before the creation of the world. So, so we have, maybe you could say we have an eternal election uh, of Christ as the true servant of God who will save his people. Now, understanding the election of Christ is, is absolutely key um, because it helps us to see why salvation can only come through Christ alone. Uh, see, salvation comes through Jesus because Jesus is God's chosen instrument, his chosen ser- servant through whom he will save his people. And that's the reason why the scriptures emphasize that Jesus is the chosen one of God. Okay, So, so in 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, verses 4 to 6, we're told, Jesus is the chosen and precious cornerstone. Okay, he, He's the chosen cornerstone because if you trust in him, you will not be put to shame. He is the one God has chosen through whom he'll save his people. Most people reject this stone. Okay, Christ is a stumbling block for them. But if you, want to tr- if you want to be saved, you have to trust in this chosen stone. Okay, You have to trust in God's chosen servant. Uh, in other words... Um, you have to come to if you you have to come to Jesus to be saved because he's God's chosen servant who brings salvation. He's the one that God has raised up. Okay, so we've looked now at how Christ is the chosen one, uh, but we've got one more step that we need to go in the Bible, and that is that whilst Christ is the chosen servant through whom he will say God will save his people, those who believe are those who have been chosen in Christ. Okay, and this is really important as well. Um, there, there is an idea, I won't go into it now because it takes too long to, to unpack, but it, it kind of comes from, from a, a reading of Bart, and, and it's possible this is uh, where Bart was heading as well. But, but Karl Bart was, was saying, look, Karl Bart's a theologian, by the way. Uh, he, he was saying, look, Jesus is the only chosen one. He, he is the only one that God has really chosen, that God has elected. Um, and, and, you know, a lot of people, they kind of take this idea that Jesus is the chosen one and turn it into a heresy by saying, well, since Jesus is the only one who is chosen, um, everyone will be saved uh, because they will be saved through the chosen one who is Christ. Uh, basically, Jesus was chosen on our behalf, um, which basically ends up as universalism. Uh, it's a way of saying, look, everybody's going to be saved because Jesus is the, the chosen one and everybody will be uh, will come under Christ. Sorry, there's so much more to unpack about that. I'm not going to go into it now. But basically saying that's wrong, okay? <laughs> that, that's wrong. And the Bible is clear that actually, God, whilst God has chosen Christ and raised him up as his servant who will save his people, uh, he also chooses particular individuals to be saved in Christ. Uh, and that's really clear. Otherwise, all, all those verses about, you know, those who will be judged and those who will be saved makes absolutely no sense. Um, predestination applies to us. And I think you can't get any clearer on this than Ephesians chapter 1. Okay, so, so what are we told? We're told we are predestined in Christ. So individuals have been chosen by God uh, to be in Christ, the chosen one, and therefore to be saved. Uh, we're told when we're predestined. It was before the creation of the world. So it's before you did before you did anything, before any of your you know good works or anything you can look at and say, look how good I am, God, you should save me. Before any of that, before the creation of the world, God already chose you. Okay, so it's it's totally grace. Um, 
and we'll, we'll, we'll look more at this in a, a bit later on, but you're actually chosen for a purpose. I love this. Uh, Ephesians 1, you were chosen to be holy and blameless. Uh, and, and this is so important because it means, look, your life is not an accident. Okay, your life is not meaningless. Uh, you have been chosen by God before time began for a purpose. And that purpose is to be holy and blameless. And so we walk in that life. We walk in the purpose by which God chose us in the first place. And we even get kind of a small insight into why God chooses us if we, if we believe. I mean, have you ever asked that? Have you ever asked, why me? You know, why me and not someone else? Um, and, and we see that, verse 4 and 5, in love he predestined us. And uh, that, that, that's pretty phenomenal. Um, he chose you because he loves you. Now, why does he love you? I don't know. Why would anyone love you? Why would anyone love me? But, um, but he does. And it doesn't really answer all of our questions, but I think that's pretty amazing. So we need to be clear on this. Um, It is clear that God does choose. He does elect. He predestines people. Um, Otherwise, all these passages about predestination don't make sense. Uh, He chose the nation of Israel. From them, he chose people within Israel to to be his true people. Uh, He ultimately chooses Jesus as the servant through whom he will bring salvation. And he chooses individuals today to be in Christ and to find salvation in Christ as we believe in him. Okay, so that's predestination in the Bible. Hopefully, uh, you've seen that it is in the Bible and that it is there. Uh, And, you know, if you want to come back, if you want to ask questions, please do leave a comment because I'd be really happy to, to come back at this Again, because I know it's a, it's a difficult doctrine for us to hear. Let me just go through a few, a couple of common objections, um, and uh, and then we're going to look at why it's good news to finish. Just to let you know, this is going to be a longer episode than usual. We'll probably we'll probably go close an hour, um, maybe a little bit less. Um, so you know, do it in parts if you need. Okay, common objections. Um, again, remember humility. Secret things belong to the Lord. Those revealed belong to us. So we can only say, we can only answer what God has given us the answers to. So it could be that that the answer is, I don't know. But that doesn't mean predestination isn't true. It just means God hasn't told me the reason why. Um, God, What God has revealed is that predestination is clearly true. He does predestine. It's in the scriptures. Uh, so we do need to come at this with humility. Okay, two objections that I hear a lot. First of all, that's not fair. Okay, that, that's the first one. Look, it's not fair that God chooses some and God chooses and God doesn't choose others. And Paul addresses this exact question in Romans chapter nine. Um, so Romans chapter nine, uh, you know, let, let, let's have a look at it. Basically, verse fourteen, he says, "I will have mercy on whom I have mercy," uh, and, he, and he's quoting God there. Uh, in other words, the, the simple answer to that's not fair is: look, you can't demand mercy. Okay, you can't demand that someone be merciful to you. The only thing you can demand is justice. And so if you want what's fair, <laughs> then, then, then you, you want hell. Okay, you want judgment for yourself because that's actually what's fair. If, if we're going to talk about what we deserve, if we're going to talk about what is fair for us, uh, well, we've all sinned. We all deserve condemnation and hell. Uh, but you, you can't do the same thing with mercy. You can't demand that God show mercy. I understand where it's coming from, but but it actually doesn't make sense to say that's not fair. Uh, and and the response is, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. It's up to God to decide who he wants to show mercy to. Um, and this is what Paul means when he says in Romans 9, look, it doesn't depend on human desire or effort. 
See, the moment we started talking about this person deserves mercy, God, you should show mercy to this person and save them, uh, we've actually moved from a gospel of grace to a gospel of works. Uh, A gospel of grace means God has simply chosen this person to have mercy on who he's chosen. Um, and, And they don't deserve it, he's just chosen them. But a gospel of works is... You should show mercy on this person. That That's the fair thing to do. They deserve it. And the moment you start saying that, you're actually entering into a gospel of works. So um, to unpack this a bit more, Paul then goes in Romans chapter 9, uh, verse 17 to 21, uh, and gives us a test case with Pharaoh. Okay, Pharaoh is a bit of a case study because Pharaoh is someone that God chose not to have mercy on. So Paul quotes Exodus chapter 9, verse 16. Uh, this is God talking. He says, about Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Okay, so, so that's key. Remember the Exodus story? What was the point of the judgment? What was the point of all the plagues? Uh, what was the point of you know Pharaoh ultimately being brought low and destroyed? Well, it was so the Egyptians and the Israelites would know that Yahweh is God. And so Exodus 9.16 is saying, that's why Pharaoh was raised up. Um, God chooses not to show mercy to him, so he can demonstrate his power and glorify his name. Now, we're going to come back to that in a moment because that's important. But notice what Paul says next. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. And so we're going a step even further now. It's not just that God won't show mercy to everyone and that that's his choice, but that God actually acts to harden people's heart in their own sinfulness, He's giving them over to their own sinfulness and hardening their heart. And that's exactly what we see in Exodus. Sometimes it's Pharaoh who hardens his heart. Sometimes we're told it's God who hardens his heart. And I think what that's trying to show is is that God's sovereign, but that Pharaoh is still responsible for his own sinfulness. Okay, both are true. Now, we'll come back to to that. But, um, but, but, you know, the, the sort of common comeback is to say, well, that's not my fault then. You know, why, what Paul, the way Paul puts it, why does God still blame us? Who can resist his will? Um, and I don't think a lot of people like Paul's answer, but his answer is basically, look, who are you to talk back to God? Okay. Now, we need to remember what Paul's already said. Okay. God doesn't have to show mercy. Remember, Pharaoh's a bad guy. Um, no, no one doubts that Pharaoh's a bad guy, right? He, he was a baby killer. Um, he deserved judgment. Uh, it, it's not unfair what God is doing. Pharaoh should be judged. Um, but but this is the lesson of Pharaoh. Uh, God does actually raise some people up for destruction. Okay, like a potter, some clay is made for a noble purpose, is what Paul says. Some clay is made for a noble purpose, and other for an ignoble purpose. Okay, so like Proverbs 16.4, God has made everything for himself, even the wicked for the evil day. Um, and that that's what we see with Pharaoh. Um, now, I just want to stop and say, look, I, I get this is hard stuff. <laughs> this, this is the hardest, especially when we aren't talking about this theoretically. You know, when we're talking about people we know, people we love uh, who don't believe. Um, and can I just say, first of all, if, if they're still alive, look, don't assume that they won't be saved. You know, remember John 6, right response now is to preach the word, pray like crazy that the Father draws them. Um, but but it is hard to hear. It's it's hard to hear that God has actually chosen some people, maybe people we know, uh, for judgment and not for salvation. Now Paul does give us a, a little bit of a glimpse why, um, and 
it's hard to understand, but I think it makes sense when you think about Pharaoh. Uh, so Romans nine twenty two to 24, Paul says, What if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy? So what's Paul saying there? Well, it seems like what he's saying is God chooses some people for destruction to show his wrath. Uh, and to make his power known. And remember, that's what we see in Pharaoh, isn't it? You know, God raised him up to demonstrate his power and glorify his name as he's destroyed. Um, and, and who does he show all this to? Well, he shows this to the objects of his mercy. So in other words, God chooses some for destruction in order to reveal his mercy and his glory uh, to those he chooses for salvation. And, and I think that's true. You know, as we think about judgment and hell, we're overwhelmed by how horrible our sin is, how undeserving we are, and yet just overwhelmed by how wonderful then God's grace is. You you can't help but say, God, why me? Why would you show mercy to me? Um, and and yet, at the same time, you're reminded of, of that terrible wrath, that, that terrible judgment and the glory of God um, by those who have been chosen for destruction. And so I think that's meant to be our reaction when we think about this, this really difficult question about predestination. Our, our reaction ultimately is to break out in praise to God and say, you know, j- just what Paul says at the end of, of, of chapter, uh, chapter 11 of, of Romans, oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. You know, we're, we're, we're to cry out and thank God for his grace. Okay, really quickly, another objection, uh, and that's the fatalism one again. You know, what's the point? If God's decided all of this, if, if God, you know, the, the most common way that you hear it is, look, if God's predestined whether I should believe in him or not, then I shouldn't do anything. You know, either he will or he won't. Or I shouldn't evangelize because either he will or he won't. And really my response to this, is going to be a really quick response, is, is just say, look, fight like Joshua. What do I mean by that? Joshua chapter 8, verse 1, God says, Do not be afraid, do not be discouraged, take the whole army with you and go up and attack I, for I have delivered into your hands the king of I, his people, his city, and his hand. Okay, so notice what God says there at the end. I've delivered them into your hands. Okay, God's sovereign power, he has already handed his handed these enemies over to Joshua. The battle is certain. But how is Joshua commanded to respond? Okay, he's not told, so sit on the hill, do nothing, and just wait for them to be destroyed. No, Joshua is told, don't be discouraged. Get out there, fight. And, and you, you can kind of see these are the two different reactions you can have to predestination. You know, on the one hand, you could be like, oh, well, well why do anything? On the other hand, you'd be like, whoa, let's get out there then, because God has chosen some people to be saved. Let's go hard for this. Uh, and, and that's, the, that's the, the reaction that the Bible actually teaches. The predestination doesn't turn us into fatalists, uh, that we should be activists, not passive, but active. Uh, so let me go through a few common objections in this. Um, some people think, well, if, if it's predestination, we're not responsible for our own actions. And we see that that's not true. So Luke twenty-two twenty-two, 22, uh, Jesus says, The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to the man who has betrayed him. Okay, Judas is still responsible for his actions, even though it is part of God's sovereign plan that Jesus will be betrayed and die on the cross. Same thing with Acts 2.23. You 
you know, um, you 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 meant this for evil purposes, crucifying Jesus, uh, but this was actually part of God's plan. So, even when it is part of God's plan, um, even though God uses evil things to happen, we're still responsible for our own actions. The Bible says we're still called to come and believe. Okay, so what we saw in John six thirty five to thirty seven, the Father draws people, but Jesus still holds out that offer of invitation to all who believe. Uh, so we still need to actively put our faith in Christ. Uh, we're, we're not called to be pacifists or fatalists when it comes to faith. We need to actively put our faith in Christ if we want to be saved, even though it's the Father who draws. Um, we're also taught we're still called to pray and evangelize. So Luke chapter 10, verse 2 to 3, you know, common verse, the harvest, is, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest. Now, this is this is crazy at first glance he's the lord of the harvest surely he can do it himself and yet we're told two things here first of all we're told to pray we need to pray that god would send more workers into the harvest even though god's the lord of the harvest and we need to go we need to actually go into the harvest even though god's the lord of the harvest so the bible never actually um never actually suggests that predestination means fatalism Uh, we're still meant to pray we're still meant to evangelize even though god is the lord of the harvest and of course, we're still called to obey and to do good. So Ephesians 2.10, you know, yes, God's prepared the good deeds and events for you to do, but you have to walk in them. Uh, or Philippians 2.12-13, to 13, yes, you need to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, but it's actually God who works in you to will and act according to his good purpose. Um, so you, you've got to hold these things together. It's very hard to. We don't understand how, and that's kind of where we need to go seek where things belong to the Lord. But we need to say, yes, God is fully sovereign, but I'm still, I still need to walk in his sovereign choice of me obeying him. Um, so basically, be like Joshua. Don't be a fatalist. Pick up a sword. Charge. The battle is yours. Okay, so that's basically um, my answer to those two common objections. That's not fair, and what's the point? Let me just read a bit of Calvin, because um, you know this has been going on for 53 minutes. We all need a bit of Calvin at this point. Okay, this is what John Calvin says. So remember humility in everything we've just looked at. Let this, therefore, first of all, be before our eyes, to seek any other knowledge of predestination than what the word of God discloses is not less insane than if one should purpose to walk in a pathless waste or to see in darkness. That's what we've been talking about. You can only know what God has revealed. This is what God's revealed about predestination. You might have a million more questions. Um... But unless the Bible actually gives the answer, we just have to say, look, I don't know. And again, John Calvin, the best limit of sobriety for us will not will be not only to follow God's lead always in learning, but when he sets an end to teaching, to stop trying to be wise. Okay, that's a, that, that's a gold quote. All right, well, let's finish this podcast uh, episode um, by talking about joy. Why is this good news uh, there's lots that we can say, but I really, hopefully already you've captured why predestination is good news. But let me just unpack it a bit more again. Remember, uh, remember Romans nine fourteen to 16. It does not depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. It is his choice. And that means that predestination releases us from a doctrine of salvation by works. I don't have to worry, have I done enough? Have I done enough? Because it's not about whether I've done enough. If I believe, then God has chosen me. And it's not my works. God chose me before the foundations of the earth. And so so predestination liberates me. 
from from this idea that I might not have done enough for God. Um, John six thirty seven to forty, a beautiful verse. I I always hear it as a Colin song because it's a Colin Buchanan memory verse. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. So predestination gives us real assurance that Christ is holding on to us. Okay, just think about it. If 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 the Father has chosen you, then He has given you to the Son. You belong to the Father. So do you think that the Son would ever drive away someone? Ever drive away someone that the Father has given him? Do you see the assurance that predestination gives you? You might think, yeah, but Tom, you don't know what I've done. I'm, I'm really sinful. I've really fallen into this sin. Um, well, if you believe, you repent and believe, Okay, you are someone who, who believes in Jesus and, and who's depending on his death on the cross for your sin then Jesus isn't going to drive you away. The Father has given him to you. Sorry, given you to him. He's never going to drive you away. Uh, so you've got real assurance. Uh, this is a beautiful one, Romans eight twenty-eight to 30. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. You've got to read that in the context of Romans 8, which is all about suffering. Okay, And, and Paul's point is this. When we suffer, we can sometimes think, well, God isn't for me anymore. Clearly, God doesn't love me. He doesn't care about me. Um, But the point that Paul's making is, well, he predestined you. And if before the creation of the world, he predestined you for glory, then you can know 100% for certain, no matter what suffering you're going through now, that you will one day be in glory. And so predestination gives you certainty that you will be in glory with God one day. Um, and, and that means that you can say with Paul that these light and momentary afflictions are nothing compared to the weight of glory uh, that's waiting for us. Okay, let me give you one more because I think this is really important. Uh, Ephesians um, chapter 1, verse 3 to 4, uh, th- this is sort of you know the, the, the ultimate passage on, on predestination. But it's important that we don't miss the main point, which is right there at the start of verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we praise him because he has chosen us. And this is the point. If predestination is true, who is worthy of all the praise? Who is worthy of all the glory? It's God. Because it's all about his sovereign choice. The moment we get rid of predestination, we actually rob God of his glory. But by seeing that God chose us before the foundations of the world in Christ to be saved and to be holy and blameless because he loves us, that erupts in praise to God because we see how great he is. Okay, a little bit more Calvin before we finish. All those who do not know that they are God's own will be miserable through constant fear. And that's what we see. Without predestination, you just have constant fear. But the moment that you know that you're God's own, you're liberated from that. And um, if you're an Anglican, this is for you. In the 39 articles, we're told, the godly consideration of predestination and our election in Christ is full of sweet, pleasant, an unspeakable comfort to godly persons. 
And that's how we're meant to understand predestination. It is of comfort. It is there to comfort us. Comfort us in our suffering. Comfort us in our doubt. Comfort us in our sin so that we can be certain that God has chosen us, that he will save us, that he is for us, and that we then turn back so that to, to God in praise so that all the glory goes to him. All right, well, we better finish up. This is I think this is actually the longest episode ever, but, you know, it is an episode on predestination, so you've got to cut me some slack there. Um, but uh, before we go, very quickly, signs of grace. This weekend coming up is the Equip Conference, uh, which I mentioned before I'm really excited about. I don't know if you can still get tickets, but I think you probably could. Um, if you can't, I'm really sorry, go next year. But but check out if you can, if you're a woman and you haven't signed up yet, uh, Equip Conference, uh, Google it. Um, I've been looking at photos that uh, Isabel Lynch, is one of the organisers of the event, um, has been posting on Facebook uh, about the conferences in the years past, and I've been really interested in learning about some of the history. Um, Equip is a women's conference that began back in 1999, and there were only 135 women uh, who were there. It was called the Young Evangelical Women's Conference. Um, And today, under God, it's grown uh, to almost 6,000 women uh, attending the three conferences that they run each year. So it's just this massive conference uh, where the word is faithfully taught. And and I think that's just really exciting, really exciting for what that's going to do for for women uh, here in Sydney and beyond. Um, And it's a a great team that organizes it. uh, the, our, our, our women's pastor on our staff team is part of the organizing committee. And she was just saying today, you know, that they meet for months beforehand to go over the talks and to give feedback, make sure all the studies are matching the talks. It is super, super organized. A lot of effort and time is put into this. Um, it, it's a really great conference. And, and another thing I love about them is I love how they are trying to create a platform for young women to have a go at speaking. You don't see that in a lot of conferences, and I think that's a really wonderful thing that they're doing. So so there are some young speakers there. Uh, Mathia is, is doing the, the youth talks this year, um, and Tash is speaking at the main conference. And, and really what that's doing, what, what that's doing is it's allowing young speakers to, to get experience so that um, we are growing the body of, of, of good uh, gospel women who can, who can preach well and 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 build up the church i think it just shows that the long-term vision equip has for strengthening evangelicals here and beyond um and the last thing i'm I'm so thankful for about equip is the unique way they go through the book of the bible you know here here at the word grows we want to let god set the agenda that's why we go through a book of the bible and try and shape the episodes around that and when you get to predestination you end up with an hour-long uh, episode, but so be it. You know, God's in control. So, what can I do about that? Um, but, but that's what Equip's doing. Um, that they have they're, they're running conferences uh, each year, but they're going through a book of the Bible. That they've been spending years just going through one Corinthians, and whatever they get up to uh, next, that's what their conference is going to be about. And I just think that's great. You know, conferences are so often marketed as a product. And what that means is is that, that you make your conference about what you think people want to hear. And that's really dangerous because often what we want to hear isn't what God wants to tell us or, or what we need to hear. Um, so, so often the things that God is telling us in, in our word, we don't even realize are important. Um, but, but by going through the Bible, this is why it's so important to do this at church as well, by just going methodically through the Bible, you actually make sure that God is setting the agenda. And, and that's what I love about Equip. You know, this year they're going through the Lord's Supper. I, I can't imagine a conference deciding to focus, hey, you know, let, let's make a whole women's a women's conference. Let's make a whole women's conference on the Lord's Supper. Who, who does that? 
Um, but, but I'm so excited because God's setting the agenda. And, I, and I'm excited to see what gold they're going to unearth from God's word uh, and how it will equip women. Okay, well, we really need to finish, but I'm, I'm really thankful. that I think equipped conference is a great sign of God's grace. And I'm very thankful for that. We do need to finish. We've gone over an hour, um, but hopefully you've enjoyed it and you've been built up uh, in your faith and in your trust in our sovereign God and encouraged to get out there and evangelize. Um, Just a reminder uh, to like us on Facebook, uh, go over and subscribe and please do share, share on your Facebook groups, share um, on your your wall, um, however you'd like to. Uh, get the word out so that more people can grow in their faith. Uh, my name's Tom Abib, and you've been listening to The Word Grows. Mm-hmm.